Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Sara Sassanelli and I'm the Adult Learning Assistant Programmer here at the RA. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime introductory talk to Dali Duchamp with the exhibition curator, Professor Dawn Addis. Dawn is Professor Emerita of the History and Theory of Art at the University of Essex, Professor of the History of Art at the Royal Academy, a former trustee of Tate and the, of the National Gallery, and a fellow of the British Academy. In 2013, she was made CBE for services to higher education. She has written numerous publications, including Salvador Dali, 1982, Marcel Duchamp, as well as organizing and co-curating many exhibitions in the UK and abroad, including Dada and Surrealism Reviewed, Dali's Optical Illusions, Salvador Dali, The Centenary Exhibition, The Color of My Dreams, The Surrealist Revolution in Art. And today, Dawn will introduce the exhibition and discuss Dali and Duchamp's unexpected friendship and their shared interests and attitudes to art and life. And without further ado, Professor Dawn Addis. Thank you very much for that introduction, Sarah. I'd also like to thank the Royal Academy for taking on this exhibition. I did talk to other institutions and galleries, which I shan't name, who couldn't really see it. They thought it was too bizarre or impossible to achieve. So uh, the Royal Academy, thank you. And it's been a great delight working with the team here, with the curators and with the exhibition organizers. And I'm really very happy with the way it's turned out. Salvador Dali, Marcel Duchamp, a very unlikely pair. They are two of the greatest 20th century artists and they are instantly recognizable. Dali for his moustache and Duchamp by association with his notorious ready-made fountain as Duchamp in 1917, top left, looking rather like Elvis Presley, uh, the age of 30. That was the year he presented fountain at the Independence Exhibition in New York. Dali, you see at the age of 32, on the cover of Time magazine in 1936. The two are seen as opposites in almost every respect. Duchamp renounced painting and is celebrated or blamed, depending on your point of view, for conceiving the ready-made, whose production he limited, while Dali continued to paint prolifically. I see this room, in a sense, as a kind of reproach to this lecture, the wonderful paintings around it, uh, against which, basically, both these artists were, in different ways, pitted. Dali courted notoriety and became the first artist celebrity in the age of mass media, while Duchamp, reserved and indifferent, apparently withdrew from art to play chess. Duchamp was a kind of one-man movement against the commercialization of art, at which I'm afraid he failed, while Dali reveled in the high prices he commanded. Avida Dollars was the anagram of his name invented by the Surrealist leader André Breton. Duchamp is now regarded as the hermetic father of conceptual art, while Dali is seen as the defender of painting, dedicated to the continuation of an artistic tradition to which Duchamp dealt a death blow. These diametrically opposed positions have assumed the status of myth. 
our exhibition proposes to dismantle these myths. I hope it will challenge the prejudices against each of them and show their work in a new light. For instance, how extraordinary and meticulous a maker Duchamp was and how Dali was a great deal more than a showman. So starting from their friendship, the exhibition explores connections, parallels and contrasts in their attitudes to art and life. They shared a skeptical attitude to modernism, a sense of humor, and a profound belief in the individual in a totalitarian age. So we look at the aesthetic, philosophical, personal, and even political links between them, and I hope that the exhibition will radically revise their familiar positions in the history of 20th century art. Now, I've been thinking about their relationship for many years, and planning this exhibition, together with William Jeffett, who's the curator at the Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, for more than a decade. One of the triggers for me was seeing this snapshot there of the two artists together on the memorabilia screen in Dali's wife Gala's bathroom. Uh, it was probably about 20 years ago when I was working on the exhibition Dali, the Early Years for the Hayward Gallery. There it is, uh, isolated. We have it in the show. Um, they are standing in front of Dali's massive 1933 painting, The Enigma of William Tell, which the Moderna Museum in Stockholm acquired with Duchamp's help in 1967 from Dali. It's just one example of, of their quite productive and interesting friendship. Now, a number of people have written about their relationship, and I came increasingly to feel that this should be explored in an exhibition rather than just in books, so that we could see their works in the flesh. And I was also keen to show the whole range of their activities in so many different mediums, and I think we cover them all. Painting, sculpture, objects, glass, film, photography, writing, chess, and optical machines. A juxtaposition I was especially uh, anxious to see was between Duchamp's large glass and Dali's Christ of St. John of the Cross, which you see here in the third room of the exhibition. Now, about halfway through the installation of the exhibition, a couple of weeks ago, I realized three things. Firstly, that the effect of the carefully planned hang and juxtapositions was wholly unpredictable. Secondly, that there were many more interconnecting threads than I had anticipated, shared themes, preoccupations, and visual echoes, and that the beginnings of these threads, which one might pull out to create a specific set of connections, could be located almost anywhere. I could, in other words, begin with virtually any of the 90-odd works on display and tell a story. I've had to limit what I'm going to talk about, but that's uh, potentially, and each work in the show justifies its place there. There's no padding at all, I think. Thirdly, almost every work by Duchamp, apart from the few ready-mades, which are, of course, mass-produced, manufactured objects, was turned out to be, when I looked at it with conservators, extraordinarily complex and often mysterious in its construction. And he was quite as much of a technical wizard as Dali. Anyway, it was a surprise to discover that Dali and Duchamp were close friends. Perhaps there was an element of the attraction of opposites, but it did go deeper than that. 
The friendship began in Paris in 1930 in the context of surrealism, of which Dali, as you see him here in the middle of the surrealist group with, uh, in, in the center with his mustache already in about 1930-31, uh, with, or perhaps 32, with Breton on his right and Max Ernst on his left with uh, Man Ray at the end there. So uh, Dali was, for a time, uh, through the most of the 30s, he was an enthusiastic member of Surrealism, while Duchamp was a courted but slightly remote affiliate. But their friendship lasted from then until Duchamp's death in 1968. <laughs> and their friendship flourished in the summers at Cadiquez. Here you see on the left uh, Duchamp um, in, in the, uh, probably in the early 60s on the, on the uh, terrace of his apartment at Cadiquez, and on the right is Dali's self-portrait with the bay in the background. About 1921 it was painted, very romantic, uh, when Dali was about 17. Dali had spent his summer holidays at Cadiquez as a child. Um, his family had a holiday house there, and his father used to rent a studio for him to paint in. That's where he painted this. Then in 1930, he bought uh, a little fisherman's cottage in the tiny fishing hamlet of Port Ligat, which is a short walk over a headland from Cadiquez. This, th his house is on, on the left there. This favored place, frequently the setting for his paintings, is where Dali felt he belonged. And I quote, I am home only here, Elsewhere, I am camping out. Duchamp had first visited the uh, picturesque Catalan seaside town in 1933. And you see him here on the right, uh, perched on top of a rock, with Dali to the right, um, and Gala, Dali's companion and future wife, on the left. Um, this is one of the various expeditions they went on in 1933. And Duchamp wrote to his friend Man Ray, we are staying in a small but delightful house, ideal weather and charming peseta. Everything was very cheap at that time there. Dali is here with Gala and we see them often. Beyond Port Ligat is Cap Creus and that's where I think this, um, this photograph was taken. And Dali records one of the expeditions with Gala and Duchamp in 1933 in the drawing on the left. Um, it, it was an incident which uh, I, which I, I've translated the text in the catalogue, and we've got the drawing in the exhibition. Uh, Dali is hiding behind a rock, looking at Duchamp in a kind of pith helmet, standing beside Gala, and he's getting very excited. Then from 1958 until 1968, Duchamp and his wife, Tini Matti, spent every summer at Cadiquez. And there's a little group of photographs showing uh, um, Duchamp, Tini, Dali and Gala going on an expedition. This here they're meeting at the Café Meleton on the quay, and I love this one, uh, walking off um, through the streets at Cadiquez. Now this friendship puzzled and irritated several of their respective supporters, especially Duchamp's. The artist Richard Hamilton and the composer John Cage, who were regular visitors to Cadiquez to see Duchamp, tried to avoid his frequent invitations to meet Dali. They'd say, do he, Duchamp said, do, do come and see Dali, and, and they, they would say, oh, no, no, not, not now, thank you. 
And Cage said in a 1973 interview, Duchamp was friendly with Dali. Isn't that strange? I was astonished to see that Marcel took a listening attitude in the presence of Dali. It almost appeared as if a younger man were visiting an old man, whereas the case was the other way around. So the exhibition here is in four rooms. Firstly, people, places, and identities. Secondly, eroticism. Thirdly, science and religion. And finally, chess and games. And the first room is broadly chronological, while the others are thematic, with, with the works more mixed up. Now, for Dali, place was all important, as we saw, and Duchamp, by contrast, became more of a nomad, displaced by war. At one point, he went to Argentina, 1819, uh, and he shuttled subsequently between Paris and New York. But they came from almost identical social backgrounds. Dali was born in the Catalan market town Figueras, where he died, and where his theatre museum now is. From the balcony of the family house, he could see the Ampodan Plain and the Bay of Rosas. And I quote from his unspeakable confessions, from which the calls to my vocation came to me and allowed me to escape from the bourgeois notarial universe. Now, this reference to the notarial universe is interesting because both their fathers were notaries. This important functionary, the notary, has no real equivalent in the UK or in the USA. And Gertrude Stein, who knew both artists, believed that it was very significant. And I, I quote from her, everybody's autobiography of 1937. Dali was a notary's son. In Europe, the role of the, in the arts played by sons of notaries is a very interesting one. They take the place of ministers' sons in America. Notaries do everything. In the smaller towns, they run the auctions, make out all the legal papers, act in all sales, in all disputes about inheritances, and so on and so forth. In other words, they're extremely important uh, figures within their communities. So these two portraits of their fathers make, make I think, quite an interesting parallel. Uh, Duchamp painted his in 1910, at the age of 23, when he'd begun to enjoy modest success, but still depended on financial support from his notary father who looks quite amiable here, and I think was, although he was disappointed that four of his six children became artists rather than useful things like doctors or lawyers. Dali painted his in 1925, when he was 21, and had just been expelled from the Madrid Academy of Fine Art. And uh, you can see it in the expression, and I, I, I quote uh, Dali's words, in the expression of my father, my, in the expression of my father's face can be seen the mark of the pathetic bitterness which my expulsion from the academy had produced on him. Well, perhaps to escape from the bourgeois notarial universe, both treated identity with great freedom as an arena for experiment. And even what would seem to be the primary identity for each of them, that of artist, became open season. Duchamp talked of his resistance to being an artist as artists are made of today. The word artist is a concept I try to get out of. What I am, in fact, I don't care. Later on, he admitted that he was nothing but an artist. So Duchamp's élâche au is a supreme anti-art gesture, desecrating this over-familiar icon. It masculinizes Leonardo's Mona Lisa, but the caption still refers to her as her, Pronounced phonetically, she has a hot arse, as it's translated. 
Both artists, in different ways, mounted a challenge to painting. In 1959, Dali published an article on Duchamp called The King and the Queen Traversed by Swift Nudes. Uh, you can, this is the title page of the article, and the painting here, he's actually got the title wrong, um, but the, the title is The King and Queen Surrounded by Swift Nudes, and we have it in the exhibition, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, anyway, Dali wrote in this article, Ella Shouhoku can be taken quite adequately as the epitaph of modern painting, which, he continued, he himself could not be accused of practicing. And Dali was returned many times to both Leonardo and to Ella Shouhoku, not least when he poses as her or him, himself, as in this Halsman photograph on the right, uh, where he emphasizes the nickname Avida Dollars, uh, showing his hand filled with gold coins, hairy men hand, men's hands. In a very curious way, do look at these various versions of the Mona Lisa, bearded and uh, mustachioed in the exhibition, because some of them really do make her look quite masculine. So for both artists, identity is potentially mutable and unfixed, open to games and masquerades. Photography, as a medium with an ambiguous claim to truth, was the medium that they frequently used. Shortly after El Achaoku, Duchamp adopted a female persona, Rose Selavi, uh, then Eros, double R, Eros Selavi, with the easy palm, as he said, Selavi, that's life. And she appears in photographs by Man Ray, as here on the left, where Duchamp is posing in one of his friend's hats, and in fact, it's her hands um, that one sees, not his. Uh, and occasionally, she, she actually signed a work. Dali, in less cut-and-dried terms, also played with identity. Rather than changing gender, he adopted a double persona composed of himself and Gala, as you see in this photograph here, with the double exposure of the two of them. And he signed many of his paintings, Gala, Salvador, Dali. He eventually assumed a public persona, spectacular and celebrity-addicted, very much at odds with his private persona. Duchamp had an experience early on that showed him how far his ideas were at variance from the current avant-garde in Paris, and it alienated him permanently from the painting profession. And this was in 1912, he submitted his latest painting, Nude Descending a Staircase, which you can see on the left, to the Independence Exhibition in Paris, the Salon. This was an annual exhibition where anyone could exhibit, no jury, no prizes, and where the most advanced artists showed their work. This time, 1912, there was a special gallery reserved for the Cubists, with the artist Albert Glaise as the head of the hanging committee, which included Duchamp's two older brothers, who were also Cubists. Duchamp's painting, when it arrived, before the, uh, the show opened, caused general consternation and horror. Well, one wonders why. At the beginning of the 20th century, artists at the forefront of modernism had a single-minded belief that they were charting a new, the right, way for art. And I quote Glaze, although at risk of, condemn of condemning all modern art, we must regard cubism as legitimate, for it carries art forward and consequently is today the only possible conception of pictorial art. In other words, at present, cubism is painting itself. Well, in that context, um, 
I think, uh, from this perspective, New Descending Staircase was transgressive. She's moving. Duchamp's two brothers, uh, who were also artists and on the hanging committee, were deputed to go and ask him to withdraw it or change at least the title. He refused, went and collected his picture, and from that time decided never to belong to a group. It's everyone for himself, he said later, as in a shipwreck. So it was the combination of nude and movement that flummoxed people. The Cubists thought it was a futurist Trojan horse infiltrating the purity of Cubism. Duchamp was interested in the representation of movement in a static medium, as here, but not because he was an undercover futurist. It was the conceptual problem that interested him. As with his portraits of chess players, the marriage of concept and visuality was directed to exploring new realms and soon took Duchamp away from painting on canvas altogether. But the new descending was ironically what first brought him fame in contemporary art circles in New York. He'd sent, he sent the painter to the first great exhibition of modern art in New York, the Armory Show of 1913, and it became an overnight, and he became an overnight sensation. There was a flurry of cartoons, and you see here that J.F. Griswold, rude descending a staircase, rush out at the subway at the top, and Robert Lacker's prudes descending a staircase from the Little Avant-Garde magazine Rogue, 1915. And the fame of this new sentence case meant that when Duchamp went to New York in 1915, he was already famous. But from 1912, not only did he decide never to belong to a group, but never to earn a living from painting. He didn't want to repeat himself, and he was averse to following the trends and isms of the time. And apart from one commissioned painting in 1918, Tume, he made his last oil on canvas in 1914. However, he continued to paint on glass, as we shall see. Now, Dali had a comparable experience with the rejection of a controversial work early in his career, and for a time also adopted an anti-art attitude, though this eventually led in the opposite direction to a fur furious acceleration of painting. Before he came to Paris in 1929, he was a prominent member of the Catalan avant-garde. In 1928, he sent uh, the painting on the left, Unsatisfied Desires, which was then called Dialogue on the Beach, to the Autumn Salon in Barcelona, where it was promptly rejected on grounds of obscenity. Dali then sent it to the gallery owner Dalmau, who agreed to hang it, but got cold feet and suspended a piece of cork over the offending part. As the whole picture is outrageously suggestive, it's very hard to see how this worked. But it was not only the subject matter that caused comment. Dali's use of extra pictorial materials, such as sand, um, and string was much commented on and seen in connection with Miro's famous claim to wish to assassinate painting. These works are, that including the, the dialogue on the beach on the left, these works are at the antipodes of painting, anti-pictorial procedure. Here we are faced with the assassination of art. Dali was indeed pursuing an anti-pictorial line and produced a group of I just said here that the cork one on the right uh, is in the exhibition. Uh, the suggestive finger is actually a door handle. Um, and you will see the cork in one of the films we have of, uh, of Dali in the late 40s, um, tearing, it, tearing a painting like this uh, into pieces. So he produced 
following the dialogue on the beach, a, a group of strange, very large, and sometimes almost empty canvases, including this one here, which we have in the show, which I call his anti-paintings. Some have sand and bits of string attached. And many show a curious feature, uh, as here, what appears to be pieces of collage, flat areas of paper, are in fact painted. It's as though he's highlighting the illusionistic potential of painting, at the same time as referring to the most advanced kind of modern art that used collage or papier collé rather than paint. Simultaneously with the anti-paintings, Dali was writing texts for the Catalan and Spanish journals praising photography and film. And the final issue of L'Amique de les Arts uh, in um, Sitges uh, reproduced only photographs and he edited it. And it must have seemed early in 1929 while he was working on the film Un Chien an Andalusian dog with Louis Bunuel, that he'd given up painting altogether. The film, Dali wrote, was created without any aesthetic intention whatsoever, has nothing to do with pure cinema, that is the abstract cinema of the avant-garde. And th there's a little quotation I want to bring in here from uh, Bunuel, Louis Bunuel, his, his, the co-director uh, of this film. Bunuel also wrote a lot about film and photography in the, in the 1920s. In 1927, he wrote about Buster Keaton. And I think it's a very, uh, it's a very important notion, which I haven't really got a chance to develop here. But I quote Bunuel. He says, Buster Keaton was the great specialist in fighting sentimental infections of all kinds. And I think one of the things that Dali is dedicated to is fighting sentimental infections. And so was Duchamp. Dali sent a, a series of little texts in the form of mini-documentaries for the Barcelona newspaper La Publicitat, and he reported in April 1929, I've been in Paris 20 days, I've only spoken to three people who are interested in painting, and not a single one who does not take a strong interest in cinema. So what happened to reverse this for Dali? I mean, it could be one, I mean, he went on writing film scenarios and tried to make films for the rest of his life. Uh, but he never really made, made another satisfactory one like Chien Dalou. Perhaps it wasn't sufficiently responsive to individual need for expression. Anyway, in the spring of 1929, he painted the first picture in his extraordinary new manner. This is the first days of spring. The key thing was his encounter with the Surrealists. Surrealism, the only lively spiritual movement, he noted in one of the documentaries. The Surrealists had loved Un Chien responding to its powerful dreamlike evocation of untrammeled desire. By the summer of 1929, Dali had become a fully-fledged member of the Surrealist movement. But it's very important to recognize that Surrealism was not a movement of modern art, like Cubism or Fauvism. There is no such thing as a Surrealist style. So signing up to the movement did not mean adopting a particular mode of expression. And indeed, Dali forged his own wholly original manner, which he memorably described as, and I quote, the illusionism of the most despicably go-getting and irresistible imitative art, the skillful tricks of paralyzing trompe l'oeil, the most analytically narrative and discredited academicism. All these can become sublime hierarchies of thought at the approach of the new exactitudes of concrete irrationality instantaneous colour photography done by hand 
of the superfine, extravagant, extraplastic, extrapictorial, unexplored, superpictorial, superplastic, deceptive, hypernormal, feeble images of concrete irrationality. So that's Dali's painting. And he cannot be accused, as he said, of practicing modern painting. Uh, so First Days of Spring is a deceptive painting, but in the opposite way to the anti-paintings. An exaggerated illusionism is, is created, I do go and look at it in the exhibition because it's very hard to see here, uh, that a number of the elements in it are actually collage. There's a little photograph of Dali as a, as a, a little boy there in the center. This is collage. These are transfers. But they are all kind of absorbed into it as though they are actual painting. And for Dali, perspective was a means to create not the illusion of a real scene, but the reality of illusions. And perspective was really important, and I'll, I'll come back to perspective later on again. Perspective was crucial to the illusion, but distorted or exaggerated or even contradictory. Um, and I think he, he, he manipulates perspective and distends its devices to construct violent and threatening spaces in which objects and figures may be exaggeratedly large or tiny, and whose distances appear vast, impossible to compute or treat as a window. Now, Duchamp often expressed his dissatisfaction with modern art, in particular with modern painting. He complained that since Courbet, through the Impressionists, the Fauves, and even the Cubists, painting had addressed itself only to the retina, that is, to the eye. And the following comment from a series of interviews in 1967, I, I think is very important, and I quote Duchamp, Formerly, painting had had other functions. It could be religious, philosophical, moral. If I had the opportunity to take an anti-Retinian attitude, it didn't change much. The whole country, is, the whole century has been completely Retinian, except for the Surrealists, who tried to get away from it a bit. Surrealism could have been one of the contexts for the exhibition, but uh, it, it got too complicated, so, so we didn't follow that. It, it's referred to briefly, but not as a, a sort of overarching um, context. So Duchamp was determined to redefine art, art-making, and the identity of the artist. And he public, publicly cultivated the role of the anartiste, that is, no artist at all and spent his time ruminating on a question that he first posed in a note of 1913, can one make works that are not works of art? And his response to this query, the ready-mades, radically altered the aesthetic landscape. The first was the bicycle wheel on the right, mounted on a stool, his first work actually to move, as well as using for the first time already existing manufactured materials. It's partly an ironic comment on the futurist's vain pursuit of representing movement and speed in two dimensions. And it possibly also refers to Jarry's, Alfred Jarry's text, The Passion, considered as an uphill bicycle race. Like Bottle Rack of 1914 on, on the left, which is the first pure ready-made, that is uh, unassisted, unchanged, it was never exhibited. And Duchamp left both Bicycle Wheel and Bottle Rack in his Paris studio when he sailed to New York in 1915. And from there, he wrote to his sister, Suzanne, telling her the term he had coined for these objects and that he had chosen a few more. I've bought some objects in the same taste and treat them as ready-made. You know enough English to understand the meaning of touffe that I gave these objects. He then asks her to take the bottle rag as a present. I'm making it a ready-made from a distance. 
and told her to inscribe it inside the lowest ring. But unfortunately, his sister had already cleared, the, cleared out the studio and disposed of both this and bicycle wheel, so they don't exist anymore. Uh, in fact, very few of the ready-made, the originals do. Um, and apart from an exhibition in New York in 1916, uh, which nobody noticed a couple of ready-mades, which Duchamp later said were exhibited in the umbrella stand, the only public, first and only public outing for a ready-made was the complex incident of Fountain in 1917. Now, this is, is worth explaining in detail, though I, I fear I may run out of time to deal with the rest of the things I would like to talk about, but I think it's important because this, this object, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, was named the most significant work of art of the 20th century quite recently. So, Duchamp was the only European artist on the committee for the first independence exhibition in New York in 1917. New York was about to rival Paris as a hub of modern art. Anyone on payment of $6 could enter. Under the pseudonym R. Mutt, which you can see written right there, a porcelain urinal was submitted. And after a row between members of the hanging committee, it was refused and apparently hidden behind a curtain. The press reported that it was refused on the grounds that it was not a work of art. Duchamp and Man Ray retrieved it, took it to the photographer Alfred Stieglitz's studio, where he photographed it, and commented in a letter to Georgia O'Keeffe, I've just photographed um, the, the porcelain urinal. It's very beautiful. And uh, in the second and final issue of the little magazine, The Blind Man, which was edited by Duchamp, Henri-Pierre Rocher, and Beatrice Wood, uh, the affair was publicized. They, they defended the object with the photograph Fountain by R. Mutt, the exhibit refused by the independents, and an unsigned text, the Richard Mutt case. The only public statement about the ready-made, this explained that it was of no importance whether Mr. Mutt made it with his own hands or not, he chose it. By giving it a new title and point of view, he created a new thought for that object. Without quite saying it was a work of art, the text claimed that the only works of art America had given were her plumbing and her bridges. So it's a kind of comment on, on, uh, on New York at the time, as well as being an attack on the pretensions of the independence to introduce New York to modern art. So the ready-mades occupy a, a kind of terrain vague that is neither art nor utility. And this is one of the reasons they were so valuable for the surrealist object, which uh, was launched by Dali in 1931 and was to be made using strictly everyday things without any aesthetic considerations. Well, the uh, fountain, as I'll call it, is actually in the second room of the exhibition. Many of the works actually could have, could have been in more than, more than one of the spaces. And the second space is devoted to eroticism. Uh, we've actually called it the body and the object. And the inventiveness of Duchamp and Dali in exploring and representing the erotic visually, verbally, and materially, veiled or, un or revealed, is really unrivaled in 20th century art. Duchamp said, I believe in eroticism a lot because it's truly a rather widespread thing throughout the world, a thing that everyone understands. It replaces, if you like, what other literary schools called symbolism, romanticism. It could be another ism, so to speak. Eroticism, 
was a theme, even an ism, of everything I was doing at the time of the large glass. It kept me from being obliged to return to already existing theories, aesthetic or otherwise. And Dali once said, painting like love comes in through the eyes and goes out through the short hairs of the brush. Um, I, I put up here, just, just to make a link, it's a painting we don't unfortunately have called Illumined Pleasures by Dali on the right, which shows a young man peeping through a hole. It's kind of wireism, which I think is at the heart of a lot of, of Dali's eroticism, and indeed is the key aspect of Duchamp's installation called Et en Donne, of which the work on the left is a study. So uh, in 1931, Dali launched the, uh, the idea of the surrealist object, um, particularly what he called the object of symbolic function, which is now the title by which the most famous of these objects, the, sh the shoe here on the right, is, is known. Um, a kind of fetishism, uh, I think, for Dali, and you can see him on the left, photographed by Man Ray with a shoe on his chin. So these objects were intended as the incarnation of unconscious desires in the amorous imagination of the individual viewer. Uh, this this is, a, is it's an elaborate process. Most of them, the objects that were made at this time, actually move or imply movement, and they're meant to be the objectification of erotic fantasies through substitution and metaphor. Um, at, at the end of Dali's text on the surrealist object, his imagination runs away with him, and he ends with a prophecy that the world will fill up with fabulous and useless objects Museums will quickly fill with objects whose uselessness, grandeur, and inconvenience will necessitate the construction of special towers in the deserts to contain them. And you might say that's exactly what's happened. Um, so the surrealist object, um, like the ready-made, invited touch, moved or promised to move with the purpose of um, arousing desire and a flamboyant subversion of the utilitarian. And so what I've tried to show in this section, this space of the, uh, of the exhibition, is the way that the surrealist object reflects back on the ready-mades and assisted ready-mades, helping to reveal the extent to which they relate to the body and have sexual and erotic overtones. And of course, you know, the erotic can find expression in lots of different ways, most obviously via the gaze and the touch. And here, I think that the, the fur pom-poms on, on Dali's Venus withdrawals are a good example. And this is an object that apparently uh, Duchamp helped Dali to make. He helped him with the construction of the drawers in, in the original plaster Venus. And Dali's tiny painting, The Spectre of Sex Appeal, magnetizes the viewer with its image of the horror and fascination of sex. And against the faithfully depicted hard mineral rocks of the Baird Cap Creus, there's a giant decaying female body, variously bony and fleshy, hard and soft, looming over the sailor-suited child, Dali. And what I hadn't seen until looking very closely at this with a magnifying glass is that down here, uh, that what looks like a kind of black rock or a cloak is actually another miniature landscape with olive groves and, and, and a mountain and terraces. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, I, um, so do have a very close look when you, when you go to the exhibition. Also, although it appears to be a headless body, there is a kind of face up here above the body in the rocks. I mean, Dali really, I mean, was, was, was such, a, um, such a genius uh, painting. Now, I'm going to try to speed up a little bit. Um, the, both 
Duchamp's really major works, which in a way occupied him for his entire life. The Bride Stripped Bare by Her Bachelor's Even, which is the large glass you see here, and a work called Et en Donne, or Given, won the waterfall to the illuminating gas, which he worked on from 1946 to 1966, are in Philadelphia Museum of Art and are impossible to move. Um, so we haven't actually got either of them. We, we've got bits and pieces related to Et en Donne, or Given, and we have the wonderful um, reconstruction of the glass by Richard Hamilton in the show. Both of these works come out of um, a set of notes that he wrote, or a num number of notes that he wrote. He started in 1912 writing these notes, and uh, I think it's, um, it, it's, that's quite important, and, and both the Et en Donne and the Large Glass, uh, as I say, emerge from the notes about, about the bride. Um, it, it, it's extremely difficult not, I mean, not only immovable, this thing, because it's a room behind a brick wall and behind a door, which you can see here on the left, uh, but you also can't photograph it, not properly. So very reluctantly, I'm showing you a photograph on the right, but it's very distorting because you look through two peepholes in the door, so there's naturally, as it were, a stereoscopic effect, and the, the nude appears not sort of distorted as she is here. So I'm sorry about that, but anyway, there, there we are. This is, this is Et Andone, this is Given. Um, and you can see on the bottom right here uh, a landscape, the, the background landscape in the here, which you, you see through this hole here, which is a hand-colored landscape with a little waterfall tinkling through it. And he based the landscape backdrop on a series of photographs that he took of the La Foresté waterfall in Belle, uh, Bellevue in Switzerland during the summer of 1946. And these photographs formed the basis of a hand-painted collage, which you can see on the right, and we've got in the exhibition, that the artist assembled on plywood and took with him on his annual vacation to Cadiquez in the summer of 1959, where he made an edition of 35 prints with Dali's help. Uh, two examples have survived, and on the back of one of them, there's an inscription in Dali's handwriting saying, M. Ducham, Tire, le uh, 1st of um, September 1959, Finia à 35 feuilles Dali. And this confirms that Duchamp made these prints with Dali's assistance. Dali had a great deal of experience in printmaking, and, and his Port de Gat studio had, had necessary equipment. So it's an interesting example of an actual collab collaboration between them. Up until his death in 1968, People really did think that Duchamp had more or less given up making things uh, in order to play chess and to construct his Boiton Valise, which was a kind of portable museum of almost all he'd ever, ever made in miniature. But in fact, he was working on this, uh, of this installation in a room. And the, the, odd, the odd object appeared, which actually turned out to be related. This is an extraordinary, um, well, it, it, one, one puzzles over it. It's, it's skin, not human skin, it's uh, leather, stretched over plaster on a velvet ground. And it, it is a study for the, for the woman in Etondone, for the bride. And there were other objects like these, um, tiny little miraculous erotic sculptures, of which we've got the originals here. Uh, not, the bronze, not the bronzes, but these are the originals. And they are actually not 
objects. They're, they're handmade by Duchamp. Um, they're sculptures which play with the sensual implications of casts and molds. There's um, this one, uh, art of dart object, is a, apparently, um, it, it, it was part of the armature for the bride in the installation, um, possibly a rib. Uh, this is the Wedge of Chastity, uh, which I've chosen to show in the two parts in which it can be, uh, it can be taken, um, a piece of galvanized plaster, and the pink is that sort of dental stuff that they make molds from, they stick in your mouth, and that's, that's the pink, it's actually that. That's a very good example of, of Duchamp playing with different mediums, which he was so brilliant at. And this is the uh, female fig leaf, which really does look as, it, as if it's been sat on by a, by a very small person, but it's actually made, made by hand. Uh, extraordinary little, uh, wonderful sculpture. And as, as I was saying at the beginning, these are all much more complex than you think, than the way they were fabricated. Now, I'm going to just very briefly, because I wanted to bring this in, because I wanted to, I wanted to make the point that while the, uh, the notes were very important for Duchamp's glass, um, for Dali also, there are texts that provide a kind of back, backdrop or a set of references for his paintings. Um, in, in, um, this is The Tragic Myth of Miles Angelus, a book that he wrote in 1933, wasn't published until the 1960s, where he explains his obsession um, with Millet's painting of the Angelus, and one, one sees the, the, the painting of the Angelus uh, reworked in all sorts of extraordinary different scenarios, like the one on the right, um, which is called Meditation on the Harp, where you see the couple transformed and the sun that uh, Dali claimed was, um, was the object that the two are mourning in the Millet uh, has turned to stone. It's, it's, a very, it's a moving painting. I can't really go into that in too much detail. Um, but I would just say that uh, Dali argued the Angelus and Leonardo's Mona Lisa had in common an Oedipal significance. And he was thinking not only of Leonardo, but of Duchamp at the end of his book, where he reproduces uh, Duchamp's El Achaucou and said, the Angelus is associated in a coherent way with the Mona Lisa through the Oedipus characteristic that is common to them. So Dali was very interested in Freud and psychoanalysis, but I'm afraid Duchamp was not at all. It's one of the things that definitely don't have in common. So, um, to the third room, and I will just very quickly introduce, um, introduce this. The third room of the exhibition is really the most ambitious, and it was originally called Science and Religion, um, and it's now called Experimenting with Reality, and it includes major works by both artists, including Duchamp's Large Glass, The Bride Strip Bear by Her Bachelors, Even, and Dali's Christ of St. John of the Cross. Uh, this is the original, uh, which is in Philadelphia, and as you can see, it's, it's cracked, um, because when it was sent to an exhibition in 1926, it was packed with the two pieces of glass taken apart, put one on top of the other, uh, which, uh, which shattered it, and Duchamp spent a long time in 1936 repairing it, but it really can't be moved at all. But I'm keeping this one on for a moment before I go to the Richard Hamilton version. Um, 
because uh, I, I just want to point out one or two things about, about this, this one. Now, Duchamp spent eight years making the large glass, between 1915 and 1923, when he abandoned it unfinished. And it was what I would call slow art. And he quite literally incorporated delay into it, leaving it to gather dust in his studio. Um, that, that there's a detail of the Richard Hamilton version, and you can see this, this here um, is the dust, uh, the equivalent of Hamilton's version of, of, uh, of the original. And it's an extraordinarily um, elaborate and precise construction, the glass. Um, this is Richard Hamilton, uh, Paul Copy Confort, Marcel Duchamp, 1966. So Duchamp approved and oversaw the making of the, of the reproduction. The notes, um, this, this is the photograph by Man Ray, taken in 1920, uh, called Dust Breeding. It was a photograph of the glass after it had been left under, uh, uh, well, in the studio for several months um, without being touched. So Duchamp published in 1934 a selection of 94 facsimiles of the handwritten notes that he had been amassing since 1912. And he gave this the same title as the glass. And in French, is La Marie est mise à nu par ses célibataires même. And of course, there's a pun in that title that you miss in the English. Because uh, the bride stripped bare by her bachelors, même, could be even, but it could also be M apostrophe A-I-M-E, loves me. Duchamp referred to this, these notes, as an album. And he said, I wanted this album to go with the glass, and that one should consult it to see the glass, because in my opinion, this shouldn't be looked at in the aesthetic sense of the term. It was necessary to consult the book and see them together. The conjunction of the two things removed the retinal side that I don't like. The problem was how to restore a function other than the purely retinal to painting. And the notes are both a statement of the problem and a solution. Fragmentary, elusive, and enigmatic, they draw on the new ideas that purport to give a meaning to our world, particularly science, they also refer to sex, as well as some old myths to provide the structure and poetic basis for the images in the glass. Um, I'm just going to refer very briefly to this. This is a painting we have in the exhibition just to make, to make the point that the notes, which, which uh, relate particularly to the glass, are also very illuminating for this painting. This is the king and queen surrounded by swift nudes. Um, because it's, um, Duchamp is drawing on the very excited language of science, uh, electricity, and so on. Um, it was an era of experiments, um, things like electromagnetic waves, and um, uh, and and Duchamp made extensive use of of the new discoveries and the language they were presented in by the scientists. Um, for example, he noted make a painting of frequency, and he proceeded to explore an unbelievably rich and suggestive field of double meanings in the terminology for electrons. Electrons were not only swift but nude, dressed in negative electricity. 
Um, and and the, the language he, talk, that he uses, uh, I, I think, is really sort of draws on this suggestiveness from scientific texts. Uh, so, so this wonderful painting is, is, a, is a wonderful um, coming together, if you like, of his preoccupations with science, with sex, and with chess. You've got the king and the queen and the, and the nudes. It's, it's, a kind of, um, it's a kind of extraordinary extension of, of cubism. Uh, I just want to introduce this um, work called Standard Stoppages, which was, uh, is an example of Duchamp challenging uh, the laws of science. It's, um, he took, it's, it's, it's an introduction of chance. He took three meters of, of thread, each one, um, and dropped them from a height of a meter and stuck them down where they fell and described it as new units of measurement. So the large glass, um, it's in two parts. Uh, the upper part is the domain of the bride, the lower part, the domain of the bachelors. And I'm just going to um, mention really uh, two things because I, I, it, it's, it's an extraordinarily complex and very enigmatic work uh, which one could spend a very long time talking about. But I would just like to mention that not only um, does Duchamp uh, refer to these the elements in it with uh, a sort of scientific language. Uh, for example, he describes the encounter between the bride in the upper part and the bachelors below um, through all kinds of mechanical operations, including the internal combustion engine, love gasoline, electrical stripping, and clockwork gears. Um, and, and there are many, many levels of reference and meaning in the glass, including uh, the iconic iconographic traditions of Christianity. And I think the references vary from the deliberate, if ironic, visual allusions to the assumption of the virgin to more ambiguous allusions, such as the stripping of the bride. And he talks about the bride revealing herself um, first in the stripping by the bachelors, the second, the voluntary imaginative stripping by the bride. And he admitted Duchamp in an interview to the multiple potential meanings of this stripping, which as well as the erotic and the electrical could even refer to the, strip, the stripping of Christ. And the glass was a rehabilitation of perspective, which had been completely ignored uh, and, and became for him completely scientific. And you can see it's a very bad photograph, this. But when you see it in the exhibition, you will see that the, the objects in the lower part, oh, sorry, the lower part, especially the, um, especially the uh, chocolate grinder, actually look as if they are standing on the floor behind. And the perspective really does create the illusion of three-dimensional objects. And I think that both Duchamp and Dali, it's one of the things they have in common, were fascinated by perspective, uh, which most 20th century painters had, had given up. Um, and I put the two together, the large glass in the centre and the Christ of St. John of the Cross on the right at the back. And the, the Christ is... Um, the, the viewpoint apparently is based on uh, a drawing by St. John of the Cross, which you see here top right and on the left in the reliquary where it now, where it now lives um, in uh, 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 in a Carmelite monastery. Um, so, so Dali has sort of taken this perspective, but he has uh, positioned it symmetrically, so you're, as it were, where are you? And the question is, in a sense, where are you standing in this painting? 
It, it's divided in two thirds, uh, two thirds at the top and a third at the bottom, very similar to the way perspective treatises uh, um, are divided. And the one on the left is one that I think Dali knew. Um, this is the uh, Abraham Boss illustration for the Polar Perspective Horizontale. So there are, there are very, very interesting, I think, um, parallels, both scientific, um, mythological, and so on, between these two works. Uh, I'm really running, running out of time, and I would have liked to talk more about uh, the paradox in this final room, the, the, in the third room, between the anti-retinal, that is, introducing a thought, a concept to the work, but also their mutual fascination with optics and optical illusions, um, of which there are several examples there, and uh, not least the double images that Dali produced according to his paranoid critical method, which involved making configurations in paint which could be read in more than one way, in two, three, and four ways. And a little clue he's put down here, a duck rabbit head, um, which is the, what the psychologists use to show how you can read something in one way or in a different way, but never as both simultaneously. So I'm going to finish uh, with one example of an actual collaboration between them, which is a, a page taken out of uh, the first monograph on Duchamp by Lebel, which has Duchamp's profile on it. And it's a, it's a very curious piece of game, playing with identity, the two of them. It's 1960, quite, quite late, and it has a red ochre uh, fingerprint, which is signed Marcel Duchamp underneath it, but here it says, j'ai fait, I made, I did this fingerprint by Dali. J'ai fait, it's a very notarial term. And then there's an unmistakable landscape of Dali's, a portly gap down here, which is signed by Marcel Duchamp. So this is, this is small, it's, it's a little piece of ephemera, but I find it quite, uh, quite moving as um, an example of their friendship. And it was actually produced at the time of the great scandal of... Uh, the, the Dali um, showing a very large painting, which we also have here, of the Madonna um, uh, in a Surrealist exhibition and leading to the excommunication of Duchamp from the Surrealist movement, uh, who had organized the exhibition. So anyway, um, I very much hope that you will all go to the exhibition. Um, it, this really has been intended as an introduction. I'm, I had far too much to say, really, uh, because I find it a very, very exciting uh, moment, this, this exhibition. The exhibition is not meant to be didactic, nor to force an argument, but rather to ask questions and to encourage the audience to engage freely, attend closely, and enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.